Well, let's turn in our Bibles to John chapter 15. Two friends of mine, uh, men I've made friends with during this campaign, commented yesterday, I feel like a stranger in a strange land. The other man said, I no longer have a country. This is not my nation, state or land. That sense of being an outcast, perhaps you felt that yesterday as you heard the result, as you saw the the great gathering at Dublin uh, Castle and people celebrating. Perhaps you felt, I don't belong in this country anymore. I don't want to walk down the street and and know that I'm looking uh, at probably half the people you see, one in every two is somebody that voted for abortion. Maybe you feel that real sense of swimming against the tide, uh, cutting against the grain. And yet that feeling of not belonging lies at the very heart of Christianity. This is not our state, our nation, or our land. Our citizenship is in heaven. We are strangers in a strange land. We were strangers in a strange land even before yesterday. We live in a world hostile to Christianity and all that Christianity stands for that seeks to erase the fingerprints of God, that seeks to muffle and silence the echoes of God in creation, in legislation, in conscience. And I'm touched by our Saviour's kindness, that we come to this passage on this morning. Our Saviour is speaking to us through his word and saying to us, I know this is how you're feeling. I have something to say to you. It's helpful for us to look at this passage today. And there's three things I want us to see. First of all, there's the reality of hostility. The reality of hostility, we see it set out in verse 18. But before we even get to verse 18, we've got to hold this whole sermon this morning in its context. Because even before we get to verse 18, there are things that we need to remember that we've heard. Jesus, what's he been doing? He's been setting out some of the incredible blessings that belong to those who belong to him. Chapter 14, verse 1, we have a home in heaven with him. We have a certainty about going there. We, that's the future. The present, we have the presence of the Holy Spirit in us to equip us, to help us, to assure us, to strengthen us, to make us more like Christ. We have the love of God the Father and God the Son poured out on us. We have God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit dwelling in us as well. We have the promise that our lives are not futile, but chapter 14, but the, the vine bearing much fruit, our lives have an eternal significance. We have the statement by Jesus that he would lay down his life for his friends. Wow! What an astonishing privilege and blessing that's ours. That God the Son would lay down his life. And then he would call us his friends. His friends. And then over and over, the disciples are told that they have direct access 
to the throne and ear of God in prayer. He spent 48 verses setting out some, not all, but a tiny fraction of the glories and the blessings. And he's going to come back to them again in verse 5 of chapter 16. But now, for 13 verses, he shows us the flip side of the coin and says it's not all going to be a walk in the park. You've got all these blessings and privileges now. You've got a stunning future ahead of you. But for now, with those blessings and with that future, you have to live in a world that's hostile to you. And you see the stark, jarring contrast between verse 17, love one another. You go from this internal environment where we love each other and we care for each other and there's gentleness and kindness towards each other. There's respect and love for each other. And then we step out suddenly into the world and and Jesus says, if the world hates you, there's no gentle introduction. He doesn't say, well, men, one of the things that you're going to find out as, you, you, as I return to heaven and you're going about this world, that it's not altogether happy with you. No. If the world hates you. If the world hates you. And the way he puts it, the, the emphasis isn't really on the if, you know, as if, it, well, you know, on rare occasions it might happen. The emphasis is on the reality of hostility. The world will hate Christ's people. Does that mean everyone in the world, 100% of the time? No. Really, we could think of the verse as being, when the world hates you, when that happens, when those occasions arise that you find yourself facing the hostility, don't be surprised, Jesus is saying. When it happens, don't be surprised. He's not saying that every single person you meet Every single moment of every single day is going to be radically opposed to you. For we know that's not the case. But he's telling us that hostility will be an inescapable fact of living for him in this world. Now as we look at this we want to avoid an extreme. Um, Some Christians and some preachers create a battlefield mentality where everything is a war and everyone is always against us and everything is, is a battle and a conflict and everyone is to be mistrusted. Even other Christians who don't quite agree with us are to be mistrusted. And you get pastors who create this us and them mentality. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Um, that's not what it is. And you, they create this a mindset where there's the world and there's us and well that's a worldly thing and you don't do that because that's a worldly thing that's worldly music and that's worldly sport and that's worldly clothes and that's worldly this and, and then they give you all their rules for what you're to do you must do this and you mustn't do that and you must and it's just a power trip by those pastors that's not what Jesus is doing and we're not to do that because what that does is that sets us in such a conflict mode that we can't respond with gentleness and grace to the world around us. We need to realize that the world may be hostile and will be hostile to us, but that's not to put us in defensive battle mode. That's that we're not caught off guard when it does happen. Jesus is saying that confrontation comes from the world. We're not to go out and 
confrontation battle mode to the world, ready to fight all and sundry. But we don't want to swing to the other end of the pendulum either and be so accommodating and mealy-mouthed that everybody loves us and never say anything that runs counter to the world's opinion. When the world hates you, don't be surprised. I want to make two main applications here. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised when people are hostile to you simply because you're a Christian. Don't be surprised when people don't like the views you hold even though those views have brought great blessing to society. The Western world is based on a foundation of biblical values, which the Western world is now eroding, but those foundations have brought great blessing and stability to Western society. Don't be surprised when people don't like that you hold those foundational views. Don't be surprised when people sneer. People shout vulgarities at you. And try to goad you. Don't be surprised when people make snide comments. Don't be surprised if tomorrow you have a string of comments to deal with at work or at school or on Snapchat or on Twitter or on Facebook. Don't be surprised. The reality of hostility. Jesus says here, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. It's the first application. Don't be surprised. The second one is don't expect or look for the approval of society. Don't expect or look for the approval of society. One of our great temptations is to want people to like us. And that can be true for us as churches and for us as individuals. It'd be very easy for us as a church to have kept a low profile these last few months. It would be very easy for me and for Johnny as, as preachers Never mind the, the, the campaign of the last few months, but for us to water down the message of the Bible, to preach a sort of Christianity light, um, a message of a God who's love and a God who gives hope and a God who always helps and a God who never actually says no to anybody and a God who never actually says that that's sinful and that's wrong. It would be easy to preach that and people would love it. The world loves that sort of preaching. Um, Jesus says if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. And the same is true for us as individuals. There can be a desire for us to water down our opinions, to quieten down our voices, to keep our opinions to ourselves out of fear of what others will think. But hostility is a fact of following Jesus. In a sense, if people don't think there's something odd about us, if people don't look down their noses at us from time to time, if people don't get annoyed at us or accuse us of being narrow-minded and bigoted and all sorts of other things, then we're not doing it right. We're not living the Christian life right. Now, hear me, I'm not saying that we're to be obnoxious and brash and harsh. Uh, that's not what we're talking about. We're not to crave the affection of the world we're also not to crave the hostility of the, the world either. There are some Christians who seem to go out and that's the way they work, where they're not, their sense is they're not doing it right unless they've annoyed just about everybody they've met, you know, and including Christians. You know, and they, they think they're doing a good job because they've, they've, they've got a lot of flack. They haven't got flack for being a Christian. They've got flack for being a pain in the neck. 
Um, and we're not called to be that. We're not to crave either the affection of the world or the hostility of the world. But hostility is a reality we have to face. In fact, think about it. Hostility is a reality everybody has to face. We either face it in this world for the sake of God or we face it in the next world before the face of God. We all have to face hostility. It's a question of which hostility we face. Do we hide in Christ and let him take all the hostility from God on the cross for us? Or do we say no thanks? And then we'll end up facing all that hostility ourselves. The reality, the reality of hostility. Second, the reasons for hostility. It's, it's a, Jesus sets out the reasons in verses 19 to 25. And it's important to note why the hostility doesn't come. It doesn't come because we're obnoxious and harsh and brash. It doesn't come because we're abrasive. As I've said, there are some Christians and that's the way they operate. But these reasons are fundamentally Christ-centered. And we need to make sure that it's our relationship to Jesus, not an abrasiveness or a harshness of our character that brings opposition. And there's, there's three things to note here. Three main reasons. One, first reason is we belong to Christ. We belong to Christ. Verse 18, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own, as it is. You do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. We live in the world, but we don't belong to the world. In John 17, Jesus says, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world, as you sent me into the world, so I send them into the world. So we're in the world, but we're not of the world. The world for John. Whenever he speaks about the world, is very often the world, not as a planet, but a world in rebellion against God. A world fighting and struggling. A world shaking its fist at God's laws. A world opposed to God. A world that doesn't live under the authority, the rescuing authority of Jesus. So that means you can't belong to the world and belong to Jesus. Because people who belong to Jesus live under the authority of Jesus. And people who belong to the world live under their own authority. My body, my choice. My life, my authority. My life, my rules. I did it my way. I'm the master of my fate. I'm the captain of my soul. So you can't... You can't live that way and live this way. You can't swim against the current and swim with the current. You can't live under Jesus' rule and not under his rule. Either we belong to Christ or we belong to the world. And the world around us seeks to live under its own authority. It doesn't really matter what way they go about it. They're trying to live ignoring God's rules and God's ways. And they don't want us reminding them that there is another king, another God, whose authority we live under. But the Christian lives permanently under King Jesus. 
And we belong to him. We've been rescued and ransomed by him. We love him. We want to serve him. And that puts us at odds with the world. We belong to Jesus. And there's more than that. It's not just that we belong to Jesus. It's Jesus is no longer here to face the world's hostility. And so we face the hostility in his place. Like an ambassador being summoned and rebuked in the absence of his own king. You know, an ambassador to Russia, the American ambassador to Russia will say, will be summoned by Vladimir Putin and rebuked for the actions of Donald Trump. And we, as ambassadors of King Jesus, get summoned by the world and rebuked for the attitude and the authority of King Jesus and for his opinion and his laws. Jesus says, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Verse 20, Remember that I told you a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. But you know what? That should encourage us. It's our connection to Christ that brings this hostility. It's our connection to Jesus that causes the world to be hostile to us. And the one thing that we want to be reminded of over and over again is that we are joined to Christ, that we are in Christ, that we are part of his kingdom. And one of the things that reassures us is that we face the same sort of hostility that he faces, faced. Verse 21, They will treat you this way because of my name. They will treat you this way because of my name. You're a Christian. They can't get at Christ. They can't shake their little fist at Christ, but they can call you names. They can sneer at you. They can take out their wrath and their, their anger on you. Secondly, Christ exposes sin. Christ exposes sin. Verse 22, if I had not come and spoken uh, to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Then down to verse 24, if I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. Why does Jesus draw down such hostility? He fed the hungry. He healed the sick. He gave the blind their sight. He raised the dead. Why the hostility? Surely he was a nice man. Surely we're nice people. But why hostility? Well, Jesus says it twice. If he hadn't spoken, if he hadn't done miracles, they would not be guilty of sin. What does he mean? Well, he doesn't mean that there would be no guilt in the world. Guilt and men have been, women have been sinning since Eden. Guilt has been here for thousands of years. But the coming of Jesus exposed sin in a whole new way. In John 3, Jesus says, This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Jesus says, Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin. Jesus' message, Jesus' holiness, Jesus' message authenticated by his miracles says to the people 
My message is true. I am God. You can't be good enough. The sacrifices aren't enough. Jesus exposed all the flaws of the self-righteous and they hated him because of it. The words he spoke condemned them. The life he lived authenticated who he was. And as such, they had no time for Jesus. They had no time for his Father. They had no time for God. And the same is true of us as Christians. Jesus has left us to be his ambassadors, his witnesses. The very lives that we lead are shaped by the Holy Spirit. He's making us more Christ-like. And that's going to lead to conflict because Jesus Christ exposed the sinfulness of people around him just by being there. Like a straight edge against a crooked wall. And as we are being made more Christ-like, there's something about us that exposes sin in people as well. We don't live perfect lives, but our lives and our values expose sin in others. And they don't like it. They don't like to be reminded of the crookedness of their lives. And sometimes you don't have to do anything or say anything. You just, you're just, your very life is a walking challenge. J.C. Ryle made this comment. He said, It is not the weakness and inconsistencies of Christians that the world hates, but their grace rattles them. In his book, The Holiness of God, R.C. Sproul tells a story about a, a, a golfer, semi-professional golfer, who was out playing a round of golf with Billy Graham. And the, the golfer came in oh, after the last one. He flung his clubs at the locker and he said, I don't need that, Billy Graham shoving his religion down my throat. And somebody else in the, uh, in the, the locker room said, oh, was, was Billy a bit you know, hard on you out there? Did he, did he really have a go at you? And um, the golfer said, well, actually, no. It's just when he played a bad shot, he didn't swear. And when I played a bad shot, I really wanted to let fly. He felt the pressure. He felt the pressure of a godly life being lived right beside him. It may be that you don't go along, well, Hopefully it is that you don't go along with the swearing, blaspheming culture that we live. But it may be that people find that oppressive. You don't go out and get drunk with them. You don't look at the same stuff they look at. You don't go to the same places and they think as if somehow you're judging them, even though you've said nothing. This whole issue of abortion. Maybe your very stand has annoyed them because of what it speaks of. It may be that you're honest in your work. And that frustrates and annoys others. It irks them because it shows them another standard against which they are measured. And inside, deep down, they know that you're right. It may be that you're honest in your work and you won't waste time or that you don't cut corners and others are pressured by that. Maybe that you keep to particular standards Legal standards or standards of safe practice where others cut corners and your adherence annoys them. 
It exposes their sin. Christ exposed sin. People were left without excuse. They felt, felt their guilt and they didn't like him for it. In some ways, you and I, if we follow Christ, are a living rebuke, a living reproach. We can't help it, nor should we want to help it. But we need to know that consciously and subconsciously, people feel it. And then third, the third reason, and there's a contradiction in terms here. You'll see it if you look at uh, verse 25. But this is to fulfill what was written in the law. They hated me without reason. The third reason is that there's no reason. Sometimes it's just irrational. Jesus quotes a line that occurs in a couple of Psalms, Psalm 35 and Psalm 69. Both are Psalms of the innocent sufferer. And it shows us the ultimate irrationality of hostility. There is Jesus going around doing such good and yet hated and despised. Christianity has done such good in the West. I've been reading about uh, the Earl of Shaftesbury, a man who fought for the rights of um, children who worked in factories, women who worked in factories, children who were used to clean chimneys, um, children uh, who were employed in all sorts of ways, cleaning out filth and sewage. He fought for sanitation for London so it would be healthy. A Christian who did such good. Christians have been at the forefront of bringing in education, of setting up hospitals. They fought famine. Uh, they've taken aid to war-torn countries. They've brought an end to slavery. Why on earth would we be hated? It makes no sense. Yet Jesus says, they hated me without cause. They hated me without cause. So be ready for the times when it's just irrational. When it doesn't seem to make sense. Yet there's something very comforting about these words, is there not? When there's, you see those first 11 words of the verse. But this is to fulfill what was written in their law. The very irrationality of the opposition that we face. Maybe you've put time into a friendship. Maybe you, you know, and somebody seems to just turn against you and for no good reason that you can, you can see or sense and yet you, you think, well, maybe it's because of my beliefs. Maybe, maybe it puts them under pressure. Maybe it's not that they've turned against you. Maybe there's, there's an odd sneer. Maybe there's an odd comment and you think, we're not as close as I've grown in my relationship with Christ. I've grown away from you. Yet God says, this is to fulfill what was written in their law. The sovereignty of God is written over the very opposition of the people around us. You know, I was talking to a friend uh, this week and I mentioned I was preaching on this passage. And he said, oh, that first verse was instrumental in my conversion. You look at verse 18 and you think, how on earth could that be used in anyone's conversion? If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. You think, how could that be used by God to convert anyone? But he was telling me that two men in his town had become Christians. And they were lovely, gentle people. And you know, they, But they would read their Bibles. They would even read their Bibles outside under a streetlight. 
and they were deeply changed. And yet the thing that he couldn't make head nor tail of was these men were utterly despised, mocked, ridiculed and hated. And it made no sense to him. And then one day he was with them and he, he read this verse. And the light went on. That's why. This is all true. That makes sense of why these men are despised. Ah, that opened up the door to him coming to Christ. Incredible. You know, we've got to remember that even amidst the hostility, our God is utterly sovereign. Utterly sovereign. Let's finish up finally with the encouragement amidst the hostility. The encouragement amidst the hostility. Verses 26 to verse 4. Jesus doesn't just drop a bombshell and leave it at that. In the next set of verses, he sets out three things to encourage and equip us and to keep us going at times when we feel the hatred of the world for all that we count as precious. Three things. And remember, this is, us. this is still in the context of all the other blessings, but three things Jesus draws our attention to. First of all, there's company. There's company. Verse 26. When the counselor comes, or the advocate, or the helper, or the comforter. So translated in all sorts of different ways. The Holy Spirit is going to come. Hostility comes, but Jesus sends his successor to live in us, to witness in us, to testify through us. We have company in this. The third member of the Trinity is in us. He will testify. He will speak the truth and reality of Jesus Christ. God doesn't leave the world in its hostility. He doesn't leave his people on their own. He comes into the world not to destroy, but to convict and to convert and to point to Christ. And yes, our lives expose sin, but look on down in chapter 16, uh, verse 8. When he comes, that's the Holy Spirit, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. The Holy Spirit is going to use our lives and use God's word and use all sorts of things to convict people of their sin and to point them to the righteousness of Christ, and to remind them that they face the judge. We're not in this on our own. Yes, we swim against the tide, we cut across the grain, we go against the current, but we do so powered by the Holy Spirit in us. Company. Second, calling. Jesus says in verse 27, And you also must testify, you also must testify, for you have been with me from the beginning. That's the original disciples were to be his ambassadors. But by extension, we too, who have the Holy Spirit, have a task to do. We don't batten down the hatches and retreat. We speak up. We testify. We bear witness to what we know about Jesus. And as the world gets darker, we need to shine brighter. That's what we're to do. Jesus has given us a task in this world to do. And we skipped over the last part of verse 20. But what encouragement there is there. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. It isn't all hostility. There are people whom the Holy Spirit will convict of their sin, who will turn to Christ, who will listen to us, who will walk in Jesus' ways. The witness of God's people, empowered by the Holy Spirit, will transform hostile people 
into family members. Fantastic. Fantastic. What wonderful encouragement. And even the very hostility, which seems like a defeat, is the means God often uses to bring about victory. Think of what's going to happen. Jesus is going out to face the hostility of the Jewish people and the Romans. And what's going to happen? The hostility that he experiences, the defeat that he experiences, is going to be the very victory that we needed. And the hostility we face and the defeats we experience in standing for Christ are sometimes the very route to victory. So how should that encourage us as we look at the events of this weekend? Encouragement, even in our calling, to be lights and witnesses. And then confirmation. Confirmation. This is to encourage us. Verse 1 of chapter 16. Jesus says, All this I have told you so that you will not fall away. And then he tells them they'll be put out of the synagogue. Someone will be put to death. He says, I've told you this so that when the time comes, you will remember that I warned you about this. We're forewarned and forearmed. We've got the Holy Spirit and we have this warning. And the warning helps us not to be caught by surprise. Imagine the book of Acts. Peter and John are arrested and put in prison. And the disciples say, that's what he said would happen. They're thrown out of the synagogue. And they remember Jesus' words. That's what he said would happen. Paul starts to breathe out murderous threats and hunt them down, thinking that he's serving God and the disciples. Instead of going, what's happening? What's happening? This has caught us by surprise. They say, that's exactly what we were told would happen. This is what we signed up for. This is what Jesus said. This is true. So even persecution doesn't contradict our faith. It confirms our faith. The same is true today. This world is exactly as God said it would be. Wickedness shakes its fist. Godlessness accelerates. Hostility is there. And yet the gospel spreads. And God's people shine. And God opens eyes. And that should give us a quiet confidence as we live in a world that's hostile to God. So don't give up. Don't despair. Don't think you're wrong. Things are exactly as Jesus said they would be. And you have company in the Holy Spirit. You and I have a task to do. And as we go about that task, we'll see the Holy Spirit at work and we'll find our own faith strengthened and confirmed. Amen. If you're able, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Father in heaven, in your tender mercy, you have brought us to this passage this morning. When we have been feeling the hostility of fellow citizens on this island to your ways, when we have been feeling the pressure of standing for you, you have reminded us that this is nothing new, this is not unforeseen, And this is the way it's to be if we're going to live under the rescued rule of our kindly King. We thank you that you do not leave us alone. That you have sent your Holy Spirit to equip, to strengthen uh, and to work through us. We thank you that you have given us a task to do. And we thank you that even in the carrying out of that task, even what seems like defeats, 
you use them as a means of victory. We thank you for that. And Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us to live with a quiet confidence in our land, not hiding our faith, not wanting to, to run away and, and take ourselves off into seclusion, not quieting down our opinions. But Lord, give us wisdom and grace so that we speak well and gently and graciously and courageously for you. Father, we pray especially for our young people that you would give them this quiet confidence as they go about their friendships, as they go back to school on Monday, as people will perhaps uh, mock them for um, wanting uh, a pro-life to win and repeal having won. Lord, we pray that you would be with not just our young people, but all of us as we live for you in this world. Give us that quiet confidence in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.